Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 280. Today's big Bible questions are, what is the good news and why is it so good? Plus, does God save us or does our faith save us? And that's four different questions. I better get started. Hello, friends. Happy Thursday to you. Today was a strong reminder that we all live in a fallen world, wasn't it? If you live in California or in various places along the West Coast, you know that we are still dealing with terrible fires, just a different set of terrible fires, and terrible air quality and air pollution yet again. And if you live anywhere within a 100 miles of civilization, you will know by now that the President and First Lady have tested positive for COVID. These are difficult and humbling times and nobody is immune. So let us pray as a nation and as the nations seeking the Lord's favor and his blessing on our land. The words of today's psalm seem unusually apropos. Psalm 85, 4-7, Return to us, God of our salvation, and abandon your displeasure with us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your faithful love, Lord, and give us your salvation. Amen. Our focus passage isn't in the Psalms today. It certainly could be, but we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, I was listening to a sermon on the book of Jonah yesterday while out exercising, and the pastor suggested that Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 might just be the single most important verse in the Bible. Here it is in context. This is Jonah speaking while he is in the belly of the great fish. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now that last little bit, salvation belongs to the Lord, or salvation is of the Lord, is Yeshua Yehovah in the Hebrew. And if that name sounds familiar, Yeshua is the Hebrew name of Jesus, what his disciples and anybody else that would have interacted with him would have called him. Now I'm inclined to agree that this Jonah passage is one of the most important Bible verses, if not the most important, but I would put Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 today's focus passage right on the same level with Jonah 2.9. So let's go read Ephesians 2 and then discuss the good news that salvation is of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So then, 
Remember that at one time you who were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Amen. So. Here are some of the most wondrous truths of God's Word, just in six verses of Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. God is rich in mercy. He has great love for His people. Because of the love, He has made us alive in Christ. Before that, we were dead in our sins. We are saved by grace, which is unearned favor from God. We are raised to eternal life in Jesus and sat in the heavens. In the future, God will display his immeasurable riches and kindness to us in and through Jesus. We are saved by unearned grace through faith, which is belief. That salvation is a gift from God. That gift was not given out of obligation, and it wasn't earned based on our good deeds. We were saved by Jesus and made by God to do good works to glorify him. Now, any one of those truths could make like a three-part sermon, or really even you could write an entire book on each one of them, because they're each so deep. But the wonderful truths of Ephesians 2 are kind of almost overwhelming when heard run one after another in such kind of a machine gun fashion. A very dear friend of mine values prayer greatly, but he is quite annoyed by the statement, prayer changes things, and for good reason. Yes, praying is important, but it's not really prayer that changes things. It is the one whom you pray to that does the changing, right? If I pray to a false god or to an impotent human, even a dead and saintly impotent human, or, I don't know, a chair, then those prayers change nothing. Prayer only changes things when God hears the prayers and moves and does the changing himself. In a similar way, from today's passage, where it talks about salvation by grace through faith, we're going to learn today that our faith is not the thing that saves us, but God saves us via Christ by grace through faith. And that might sound like kind of a fine distinction in language, but it is a massive distinction in theology. So I want to turn to pastor and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who also considers Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, one of the keynote and most important foundational statements of Scripture. And he's going to help us walk through salvation by grace through faith today. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones says of this passage, 
This is a description of what it really means to be a Christian. More and more, I am convinced that most of our troubles in the Christian life really arise at that point. For if we are not right at the beginning, we shall be wrong everywhere. And it is because so many are still confused at that very first step that they are always full of problems and difficulties and questions, and do not understand this and cannot see that other thing. It is because they have never been clear about the foundation. So what does the apostle say? He says that we are Christians entirely and solely as the result of God's grace. Now, surely no one can dispute that. You are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Notice the apostle's method here. The whole statement is in three verses, and in a sense, we can take the three verses as our divisions, our headings for our thoughts today. He first of all makes a positive statement in verse 8. He follows it with a negative in verse 9. And the purpose of the negative is to reinforce the positive. It is just saying the same thing negatively. And then in the 10th verse, he seems to combine the two, the positive and the negative. So let's start with a positive statement. Here is his assertion that we are Christians entirely and solely as a result of the grace of God. So let's remind ourselves once more that grace means unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. It's an action which arises entirely from the gracious character of God. So the fundamental proposition is that salvation is something that comes to us entirely from God's side. What's still more important is this, that it not only comes from God's side, it comes to us in spite of ourselves. Unmerited favor. In other words, it's not God's response to anything good in us. The second proposition is put by the apostle in a negative form. He says the fact that we are Christians gives us no grounds whatsoever for boasting or bragging. That's the negative of the first proposition. The first is we are Christians solely entirely as a result of the grace of God. Therefore, secondly, we must say that the fact that we are Christians gives us no grounds whatsoever for boasting. The apostle puts that in two statements. The first is, this is not of yourselves. But he's not content with that one statement alone. He must put it even more clearly in these words, lest any man should boast. There we have two vitally important statements. Surely nothing could be stronger than this, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. This must always be the crucial test of our view of salvation and of what makes us Christians. So let's examine ourselves for a moment. What is your idea of yourself as a Christian? Asked Dr. Lloyd-Jones. How have you become a Christian? What is it dependent on? What is the background? What is the reason? That's a crucial question. And according to the apostle, the vital test, does your idea of how you have become a Christian give you any grounds whatsoever for being proud of yourself or for boasting? Does it in any way reflect credit upon you? If it does, according to this statement, and I don't hesitate to say it, you're not a Christian. Because, Paul says, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. In the third chapter of the epistle to the Romans, the apostle puts it still more plainly. He asks his question, where is boasting then? He answers by saying, it is excluded. It's put right out through the door and the door locked on it. There's no room for it here at all. There's quite a popular evangelistic teaching at the present time which says that the difference which the New Testament makes can be put in this way. In the Old Testament, God looked at the people and said, Here is my law, here are the Ten Commandments, keep them and I will forgive you and you will be saved. But it goes on to say that it's not like that now. God has put all that on one side, there is no longer any law. God simply says to us, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and if you do, you will be saved. In other words, they say that by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, a man saves himself. 
But that, says Lloyd-Jones, is to turn faith into works because it says it is our action that saves us. But the apostle says it's not of yourselves. Whether that that refers to faith or to grace, it doesn't matter. You are saved, says Paul, by grace and that not of yourself. If it is my belief that saves me, I have saved myself. But Paul says that it is not of yourself so that I must never speak of my faith in a way that makes it of myself. And not only that, if I became a Christian in that way, again, surely it gives me some grounds for boasting, but Paul says, not by works, lest any man should boast. My boasting, then, must be entirely excluded. And that brings us to the last principle. Our being Christian is entirely the result of God's work. The real trouble with many of us is that our conception of what it is that makes us Christian is so low, so poor, it is our failure to realize the greatness of what it means to be a Christian. Paul says we are his workmanship. It is God who has done something. It is God who is working. We are his workmanship, not our works, his works. So I say again, it is not our good life. It's not all of our efforts in hoping to be a Christian at the end that makes us Christian. But let me go further. It is not our decision, our deciding for Christ that makes us Christian either. That is our work. Decision does come into it, but it is not our decision that makes us Christian. Paul says we are his workmanship. I remember a very good man, a good Christian man, whose way of giving his testimony was always this. I decided for Christ 30 years ago, and I have never regretted it. That was his way of putting it. But that's not Paul's way of describing becoming a Christian. We are his workmanship. That's the emphasis. Not something I have gone in for, not something I have decided, not something I've done, but something God has done to me. He might better have said it like this. Thirty years ago, I was dead in my sins, but God began to do something to me. I became aware of God dealing with me. I felt God smashing me. I felt the hands of God remaking me. That is Paul's way of putting it. Not, I decided. Not, I went in for Christianity. Not, I walked the aisles. Not even, I decided to follow Christ. Not at all. That does come in, but that is later. We are his workmanship. A Christian is a person in whom God has worked. And I appreciate Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones's emphasis there. Salvation is not of ourselves. Salvation is of God. It is through Jesus. He is the one that has saved us. It's not our faith that saves us, but we are saved by grace, through faith, not by works. There is no boasting. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We continue with 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. King Solomon reigned over all Israel, and these were his officials, Azariah, son of Zadok, priest, Elihoreph and Ahijai, the sons of Shisha, secretaries, Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, court historian, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, in charge of the army, Zadok and Abiathar, priests, Azariah, son of Nathan, in charge of the deputies, Zabud, son of Nathan, a priest and advisor to the king. Ahishar, in charge of the palace. And Adoniram, son of Abda, in charge of forced labor. Solomon had twelve deputies for all of Israel. They provided food for the king and for his household. Each one made provision for one month out of the year. These were their names. Ben-Hur, in the hell country, hill country of Ephraim. Ben-Dekur, and Makaj. Shalbim, Beth-Shemish, and Elon, Beth-Hanan. Ben Hesed in Araboth, he had Sukkah and the whole land of Hefer, Ben Abinadab in all Naphathador, Tepheth, daughter of Solomon, was his wife. 
Ba'anat, son of Ahlud, and Tanakh, Megiddo, and all of Beth Sheen, which is beside Zarathan, below Jezreel, from Beth Sheen to Abel Mahola, as far as the other side of Jachmim. Ben Geber, in Ramoth Gilead, he had the villages of Jair, son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead, and he had the region of Argob, which is in Bashan, sixty great cities with walls and bronze bars. Ahinabdab, son of Iddo, in Mahanaim. Ahimaz in Naphtali, he also had married a daughter of Solomon, Bazamath. Baana, son of Hushai, in Asher and Baaloth. Jehoshaphat, son of Parua, in Issachar. Shammai, son of Ilah, in Benjamin. Geber, son of Uri, in the land of Gilead, the country of King Sihon of the Amorites and of King Og of Bashan. There was one deputy in the land of Judah. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea. They were eating, drinking, and rejoicing. Solomon ruled all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines and as far as the border of Egypt. They offered tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provisions for one day were a 180 bushels of fine flour and 360 bushels of meal. Ten fattened cattle, twenty range cattle, and a hundred sheep and goats, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and pen-fed poultry. For he had dominion over everything west of the Euphrates, from Tipsa to Gaza, and over all the kings west of the Euphrates. He had peace on all his surrounding borders. Throughout Solomon's reign, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, each person under his own vine and his own fig tree. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Each of those deputies for a month in turn provided food for King Solomon and for everyone who came to King Solomon's table. They neglected nothing. Each man brought the barley and the straw for the chariot teams and the other horses to the required place according to his assignment. God gave Solomon wisdom, very great insight, and understanding as vast as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and He-Man, Kalkol, and Darda, sons of Mahol. His reputation extended to all the surrounding nations. Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs in his songs, number 1,005. He spoke about trees from the cedar in Lebanon to the hyssop growing out of the wall. He also spoke about animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, emissaries of all peoples sent by every king on earth who had heard of his wisdom came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. King Hiram of Tyre sent his emissaries to Solomon when he heard that he had been anointed king in his father's place, for Hiram had always been friends with David. Solomon sent this message to Hiram, You know my father David was not able to build a temple for the name of the Lord his God. This was because of the warfare all around him until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. The Lord my God has now given me rest on every side. There is no enemy or misfortune. So I plan to build a temple for the name of my God, according to what the Lord promised my father David. I will put your son on the throne in your place, and he will build the temple for my name. Therefore, command that cedars from Lebanon be cut down for me. My servants will be with your servants, and I will pay your servants wages according to whatever you say, for you know that not a man among us knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. When Hiram heard Solomon's words, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord today. He has given David a wise son to be over this great people. 
Then Hiram sent a reply to Solomon saying, I have heard your message. I will do everything you want regarding the cedar and cypress timber. My servants will bring the logs down from Lebanon to the sea, and I will make them into rafts to go by sea to the place you indicate. I will break them apart there, and you can take them away. You can then meet my needs by providing my household with food. So Hiram provided Solomon with all the cedar and cypress timber he wanted, and Solomon provided Hiram with 120,000 bushels of wheat as food for his household and 120,000 gallons of oil from crushed olives. Solomon did this for Hiram year after year. The Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him. There was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. Then King Solomon drafted forced laborers from all of Israel. The labor force numbered 30,000 men. He sent 10,000 to Lebanon each month in shifts. One month they were in Lebanon, two months they were at home. Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 20,000 porters and 80,000 stonecutters in the mountains not including his 3,300 deputies in charge of the work. They supervised the people doing the work. The king commanded them to quarry large, costly stones to lay the foundation of the temple with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders, along with the Gebelites, quarried the stone and prepared the timber and stone for the temple's construction. Psalm chapter 85, verse 1. Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave your people's guilt. You covered all their sin. Selah. You you withdrew all your fury. You turned from your burning anger. Return to us, God of our salvation, and abandon your displeasure with us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your faithful love, Lord, and give us your salvation. I will listen to what God will say. Surely the Lord will declare peace to his people, his faithful ones, and not let them go back to foolish ways. His salvation is very near those who fear him so that glory may dwell in our land. Faithful love and truth will join together. Righteousness and peace will embrace. Truth will spring up from the earth and righteousness will look down from heaven. Also, the Lord will provide what is good and our land will yield its crops. Righteousness will go before him to prepare the way for his steps. Ezekiel chapter 35 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, face Mount Seir and prophesy against it. Say to it, this is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against you, Mount Seir. I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolate waste. I will turn your cities into ruins and you will become a desolation. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you maintained a perpetual hatred and gave the Israelites over to the power of the sword in the time of their disaster, the time of final punishment. Therefore, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I will destine you for bloodshed, and it will pursue you. Since you did not hate bloodshed, it will pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a desolate waste, and will cut off from it those who come and go. I will fill its mountains with the slain. Those slain by the sword will fall on your hills, in your valleys, and in all your ravines. I will make you a perpetual desolation. Your cities will not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you said, These two nations and two lands will be mine, and we will possess them, though the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I will treat you according to the anger and jealousy you showed in your hatred of them. 
I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have heard all the blasphemies you uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are desolate. They have been given to us to devour. You boasted against me with your mouth and spoke many words against me. I heard it myself. This is what the Lord God says. While all the whole world rejoices, I will make you a desolation. Just as you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it became a desolation, I will deal the same way with you. You will become a desolation. Mount Seir and so will all Edom in its entirety. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Amen. Good day to you, friends. May the Lord shine on you. May he protect us all. Godspeed.